0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Today, 48 of 50 states permit some form of legal gambling, and America's governors sit at the head of the gambling table. But have states become addicted to the revenues gambling can bring? And does the potential of increased revenue lead them to place risky bets of their own on new casinos, lotteries, and online games? My guest, David Clary, addresses these questions and a host of others in his new book, Gangsters to Governors, The New Bosses of Gambling in America. David is a news editor at the San Diego Union-Tribune. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you David Clary. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so
1: much for having me, Scott.
0: You have written a great book about gambling, gangsters to governors, the new bosses of gambling in America. As I'm reading, I'm thinking, does this guy gamble? Are you a gambler?
1: You know, I consider myself a very light gambler. I like uh, I like going to the racetrack. You know, that's uh, I've been going there ever since I was a kid, so I uh, I enjoy that. Um, I you know I do the NCA tournament pool. Uh, I do uh, I go to the casino. well, a couple of times a year, but I, I would consider myself very a very light gambler. Maybe I'm. Uh, I don't think I've changed my uh, status since I've done this book. I think I'm the same level of gambler now that I that I was uh, six years ago. Uh, I've never actually bought a lottery ticket though. Um, I uh, I just, I just find it's so, uh, the odds are just so astronomical. I mean, to win the Powerball is, it's a one in 292 million chance. So to me, it's almost like throwing your money away. It's just, you know, I, I just don't think it's worth even doing. Um, I don't judge people who gamble or, or who buy lottery tickets or do other things. I feel like you know, that that's your right to do that. And if it's legal, um, if you just do it for entertainment, you know, sometimes you just, you put a few bucks down on a lottery ticket and it's just something to talk about at work for, you know, for a week, but what, what would happen if I won $500 million? And, um, so I, I, you know, I'm not judgmental about it, but I'm just, I'm a very light gambler, I would say.
0: John Oliver on his show did a thing on the lottery and he's, you know, he's showing all these like, um, news outlets that do these like specials on um what to do if you win the powerball and he's like basically it'd be more practical if, if they did features on what to say on your third date with beyonce or what to do if you're about to score the winning touchdown in the super bowl and a shark attaches to your leg it's so like uh yeah it's so funny but they, there is a fascination with it right i mean it's with the romanticizing of the lottery um you, you tell, open the book talking about Revel Casino. Right. Which right. my wife and I stayed there a couple of times. We live in the phone. Oh, okay. It was, I mean, that place was amazing. Uh, just, we, we miss it. It was this gorgeous casino and the, the views and the rooms were amazing. But, but it is like paradigmatic, right? Of like what happens to the casino industry. I mean, it's just like the thing, like all this money was spent and the thing just busted in like two years.
1: Yeah, it was, uh. It, the, the whole project cost over $2 billion and the state was instrumental in, in actually building it because the, the, the cranes had stopped and uh, they, they needed more money and the state provided really essential backing to get the cranes going again and Chris Christie, the governor, put a lot of uh, uh, his, his prestige on the line to get the project done. Uh, so I actually, I actually went there in 2013. I think it, it had been open about a year or so. And I was just really struck by how hollow it seemed. I mean, you just walked in there and it just, it really felt like, uh, it just felt very cold. And, uh, I didn't feel like there were a lot of people there. It just seemed a little out of place. I mean, it was a beautiful building, but it just seemed like, you know, that it was out of place. You know, the other, the other casinos on the boardwalk are a little more. Um, yeah, they've got themes to them. And, uh, and I think also the timing of the project was, was like the worst possible time because, uh, Atlantic City had been losing business, to, uh, casino business to, uh, to, to neighboring states like Philadelphia or like Pennsylvania. There's casinos now in Philadelphia, uh, in the Yeah, Ed suburbs. Rendell,
0: Ed Rendell, like pushed hard for that. And he used to say, He's like, been, he hated seeing that tax revenue. And I was shocked yeah. in the book you talk about, like, the, the, the gambling revenue dropped more than half right like when those local like casinos started in pennsylvania
1: yeah it did and uh and it's it's never come back and so i, I atlantic city is just uh it's a shrinking market there's uh the pennsylvania has been extremely aggressive in expanding casino betting uh, i think just a few i think last week or the week before the governor of uh, pennsylvania in order to balance the budget he increased or he approved a uh, expansion of casino uh gambling so yeah, it, gambling revenue is so important to these governors, and they they, they want to hold on to it as much as possible. So that explains why Chris Christie was so aggr- has been so aggressive and trying to fund the Ravel project and try to trying to restart um, Atlantic City because they're you know the, 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 this revenue is built into their budgets, and if it starts to if it even if it plateaus, they they get concerned and they do everything they can do to expand it. You know, so increasing casinos, and increasing the number of slot machines raising the price of lottery tickets uh, raising minimum bet levels uh, you just you, you just always see that
0: hey, do, do you think there's something to do with the, the, the American relationship to taxation that like incentivizes because it's just like I mean nobody likes taxes right no but but because of our sort of history our founding you know and it's sort of tax revolution like there's it's just is this is 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 this a bipartisan popular kind of thing? Legalized gambling because like it's a great way to raise revenue and you don't have to talk about taxes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly the appeal it has to, to politicians because they really see. They see gambling as a painless tax. You know, it's something that you don't have to do. It's not like paying your income tax, staying income tax or paying the gas tax. You know, if you drive, you, you know, you have to have gas for your car. Uh, so they do see it as a painless tax. No governor wants to increase, uh, your property taxes or your, uh, or your, or your income tax. Um, so they, they do see it uh, and I think. They see it as a uh, an acceptable uh, way of raising money. It's it's just, it's so pervasive in our culture now that it's uh, you know thirty eight billion dollars uh, every year of gambling revenue goes into state and local governments. So it's a it's a really significant for a significant amount of money that uh, comes into government from gambling.
0: Did, did you did this book develop out of I mean you you are a newspaper guy right um, That's right. So did did it. Did this come out of reporting you were doing? I mean, why? Like, why this book? You know, what, what? When did you start getting interested in the issue?
1: Well, I, when I was a, you know, like I said, when I was a kid, I uh, my parents took me to the racetracks, uh, Saratoga. I grew up in upstate New York, so Saratoga was uh, one we went to a lot. And I just, you know, I just got interested, and in, I've always been interested in in, the, in gambling. And uh, and then we, when I was uh, fourteen, we took a, a trip out to California. So we hadn't been. We had not been west, I don't think i been west of Niagara Falls, uh, up until that time. So we took this big trip to California and we, uh, uh, drove, uh, went to Los Angeles and then from Los Angeles, we drove, uh, through the desert for hours and hours. And I saw real mountains for the first time, you know, cause in New York state, they're not, not, not really mountains when, until you go out west. And I was just struck by the desolation and the, the landscape. And then suddenly we end up in this city and it's, the city is bathed in neon and, middle of nowhere and it's las vegas and it just uh you know i was 14 so it really it just stuck in my mind and we stayed at the, the flamingo and first time i'd seen an actual casino before and uh you know, just walking through there and you see the drama of the casino, the people, people are excited. People are bored. People are, uh, you know, they, they, they're, uh, they're celebrating. So I just got caught up in the drama of that. And, uh, just, uh, although I couldn't bet at that time, it was just fascinating to me to look at. And then, uh, I moved to San Diego, uh, from Ohio in 2002. And one of the things that really surprised me about San Diego County is that there were 10 Indian casinos in the county. I really, I had no idea until I moved here and Ohio had no legal casinos at that time. So, uh, so it was, uh, I always was, you know, when I moved here, I was curious as to why are there so many here? Why are they in remote areas? And, um, and yeah, I just, it, it was a big issue in California when, when I started working here and I just, uh, I think I just wanted to look into that. And the more, I, you know, the more you dig into gambling history, the more fascinating it gets. You know, you look, you run into characters like Bugsy Siegel and, uh, Steve Wynn, you know, Donald Trump is a, is a figure you run into. So, um, so I think the more I, the more I dug into the issue, the more fascinating it got for me. And, uh, you know, it took me about six years of research and writing, uh, to do the book because I look at all forms of gambling, not just uh, casinos. I look at. You know, horse races, horse racing and lotteries and sports betting and online betting. So, I, you know, it takes a lot of time to understand all those issues uh, and uh, oh, yeah. t- the, the tie them stuff, together.
0: The stuff I find mind blowingly fascinating in the book is, you know, you, when you talk about how odds are made, like on, you know, and things like how, like, how, you know, with horse racing and, and trying to keep it honest and, and then sort of sabotaging, you know, racetracks going out playing false intelligence. This, I mean, all right. this. I, and I was just thinking about how do you even you know in the numbers games and how you how you do the metrics. I'm like, this is like, I mean, these are like algorithmic level smart people in this in inter- you know, and it was in in this underground industry as it develops.
1: Yeah, and and one and one thing I found is I you know I did the research is that government really was the essential ingredient to making gambling legitimate because because like you say there was so much corruption in horse racing you know before when it was unregulated and then once government got involved and started overseeing it and uh and driving some revenue from it then it became more legitimate people feel felt more comfortable playing it because they knew it was on the level it wasn't something that was illegal or uh or underground um so that that's that's that, that was a the big theme that i walked away with is that government really really was was and is an essential ingredient to making gambling legitimate. I mean, it was something that was seen as a vice for many years. And in, in some quarters, it's still seen as a vice. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it, it's, um, you know, when, when government says it's okay, when government encourages people to play, you know, for the sake of the kids, you know, for public education or to, to reduce, uh, yeah, uh, property taxes, you know, they make it into a, almost like a, it's a virtue to gamble almost that it's, you're doing, you're, you're helping supporting public, public education. If you buy those lottery tickets or you're doing you your civic against, duty. You know. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, they, they really do. They really do portray it that way. And it's, uh, so that, 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 was, that was really the thing that was the most, uh, fascinating to me about doing the book was just how, how important it was for uh, that government got involved and and really made it into something legitimate.
0: But it, it, you do talk about in the book though, that it, 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 it never quite pays the way government promises, right? Like you look at Atlantic City and they promised all these things were going to happen with regard to urban renewal and quality of life. And it, it, Atlantic City is still like outside of, the, it's like two cities. It's, you know, the boardwalk and then the uh-huh. rest of it. And the rest of it feels. A lot like Camden, New Jersey, which is a crime-ridden, yeah. really struggling urban area. I mean, it's it's it's, it's seldom but it's it, it's always everything's always going to get better with these with these casinos we build and things like that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I and I you know I dragged my family to Atlantic City for uh, for I think four days back in 2013 because I really wanted to see it for myself. I had never been there. I did so much research and so much reading about it, but you have to really see a place to understand it. So I, so I did that and I, we stayed at the resorts right on the boardwalk, which was the first legal casino in Atlantic City in 1978. Uh, and I spent a lot of time, like you say, I, 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 did, I walked around the boardwalk. I looked at all the casinos and, and then I, I, I went, uh, just a few blocks from the boardwalk and it was, uh, it was a, it was stunning. I mean, you only have to walk a few blocks away and it's, you're, you're in a, you're in a very, uh, very impoverished area and uh you know there's open lots and there's uh, cr- uh broken sidewalks uh just clear clearly uh, lots of poverty uh so it's only a few blocks away from the boardwalk and it's uh it's a whole different world um so yeah i mean i think uh you know generally governors and legislatures they overpromise what casinos can deliver they tend their revenue forecasts tend to be o- overly rosy uh they uh they say that if we have, if we approve casinos, then we're going to have, uh, this, we're going to turn around our downtown. We're going to turn around this abandoned mining town. We're going to, we're going to make, uh, we're going to make these, these places, uh, we're going to bring in jobs. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, and and it does, but, but almost, I I mean, example after example, they'll say, you know, it'll, it'll generate X amount of revenue and then it's, it's half of it or it's three quarters of it, or it's a quarter of it of what they promised. And, uh, yeah it, it just especially now because we have such a glut of gambling in our country we've got a thousand casinos and we've got um nine hundred thousand slot machines across the country and it and it's almost everybody lives within probably half of, at least half hour drive from a major casino uh so it's um it's just not the, the money's not there anymore as it was and, and it's an issue no one talks about i mean
0: i i feel like it as pervasive as it is right and is as bound up now with our revenue streams at state in local levels, you know, the things. But yeah, I, you know, nobody uh, in, in exit polls, no one ever says that's an issue. You know, the only time I ever hear it, it talked about it at all is like in Philadelphia. If Ooh. they're going to build a casino, people just don't want it in their neighborhood. <laughs> like, They'd they like it, just not in their neighborhood. But other than that, it, it seems like there's just almost no public discourse about this. I mean, you, you just don't hear it talked about anywhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's gambling is just, it's so ingrained uh, in our culture. I mean, we've had, we've really had, have been, we've had lot, legal lotteries since the seventies in many states. We've had, you know, Atlantic city started in the seventies, you know, Nevada legalized gambling in the thirties, you know, we, racetracks have, have offered gambling since the thirties in a lot of cases. So it really, it's just, a, it's such a part of our landscape. I think we don't, yeah, we don't really see it. We don't think about it uh, because it's, it surrounds us, you know, if, and, and especially today we've got, you know, if you've got a cell phone or a, a smartphone, you've, or an iPad, you know, you're potentially, you're carrying a casino in your pocket, you know, they're, So, so it's even more entrenched now than it, uh, than it, than it ever has been. So yeah, we don't, I don't think we talk about it as, as much as we should. And. It's really never talked about as a vice. I mean, it's pretty rare to hear somebody uh, who somebody say, you know, gambling's immoral. It's, it's, it's very unusual to hear that now. You did hear that many years ago, but, um, uh, yeah, generally the opposition is you, you don't want a casino in your backyard. You don't want to deal with the traffic. You don't want to deal with, with that kind of stuff. So it's, so it's, it's interesting how the opposition to gambling is more kind of more of those personal issues and thus less about the the morality of it, which you don't. Here as
0: much anymore. You tell this great story in the book, uh, where this uh, is it. Leonard Minuto is, is this organized crime figure who, uh, in in testimony after he got indicted, I guess, where he said that um, he explained that that Minuto pointed out that states keep a much larger share of the tax the take than the illegal operators who accept a fifteen percent <laughs> tax-free profit margin. Um, he said basically the state pays five hundred to one, and the numbers uh, give six hundred to one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so it, it's like it, it's. So I'm just thinking, wow, the state's more exploited than the funding thing than than the crime families were.
1: Yeah, that's it, 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 true, and there. Yeah, uh, you know, and you think of how much it costs to run a lottery. You've got to you've got to market it. You've got to have an ad budget. You know, so that that's state money that's that's spent to to advertise. You've got all these people. That you have to pay. You've got to pay out prizes. So it's it, it just seems to me a real a real efficient way of raising. Raising money is, is through a lottery, but uh, I don't see them going away. I think they're, <laughs> I think that's, they're just, they're just so entrenched in our culture. And, uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't see them going away because the states are so used to that revenue. They don't want to give it up. So, like,
0: yeah. And so, I mean, you know, that like the the real threat to the gambling. Industry is not going to be like prohibition. It's 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 market saturation problems, right?
1: I, I think so. I mean, certainly in the, we've seen that in the case of Atlantic City. It's uh, it's certainly market saturation there. I mean, they they had a uh, there was a year a few years ago when Revel closed. I think also a, a bunch of other casinos closed in Atlantic City. So they I think they lost about a third of their casinos in one year. Um, so they're yeah, and in places like that, you're real you're really going to see. Uh, yeah, you're going to see a kind of a contraction because of the saturation we have. You know, if you live in Philadelphia and you've got, and you're, you're a gambler, you're going to, you're going to gamble, uh, at, down at Penn's Landing. You're going to do, you know, if you live in the suburbs, you go to one of those casinos instead of driving I, all I, the way. I up. live, I
0: live like five minutes from, where I, I'm, I'm just at the oh, edge okay. of the city in Lower Bucks County. And I, okay. I one of the biggest one parks is right by my house.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> minutes away. So if you're yeah, if you're interested, if you want to play some blackjack or you want to play a slot machine, why would you drive all the way out to Atlantic City? I mean, it's just it, it doesn't make any sense. You're gonna stay. You're gonna play there, or gonna, maybe you'll go downtown if you feel like going downtown. But you're not gonna drive. It's what is it an hour and a half to Atlantic City or two hours if it's a lot of traffic and it's just a hassle. But when Atlantic City had monopoly on East Coast gambling then people from Philadelphia that's where they would go. People from New York City, that's where they would go, because that was the only place you could do it legally.
0: Yeah, and they, the te- it's funny the Texas Hold'em craze, like you know that that swept the nation. I mean, I knew people that would drive to Atlantic City to play Texas Hold'em, and now every you know several of the casinos in Philly have cash uh, Hold'em tables. Uh-huh. You just go and you know if you want to scratch your poker, you just go. And it's you know a ten minute drive, and yeah, I mean it's it. it I mean it, it is. I, I could see how that's hurt the market a lot because I see it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and one thing New Jersey is is trying to do and this is actually a major case before the Supreme Court this term is there they want to offer sports books at their casinos in in New Jersey and Chris Christie has been has been a, has been a very a really strong proponent of this and this this case has been knocking around the courts since 2009 I think and now finally it's going to be uh, heard at the Supreme Court so basically the New Jersey is saying that we should have the right to offer uh sports betting at our casinos and right now there's a federal law that bans states from doing that. Uh, so only in Nevada can you can you gamble on single games, single game sports. Uh, so uh, but why so is that the,
0: so sacrosanct? Like why? I mean, we have so many forms of gambling. Yeah. Why, why is this sacred, a sacred cow, like sports betting?
1: I think a lot of it is just the weight of history. You know, leagues uh, have traditionally been very firmly against it. Uh, we've had lots of sports scandals, uh, sports betting scandals in our history. And going back to the uh, the Black Sox scandal of 1919, uh, you've got there were major scandals in college basketball in the in the 50s. And even today, uh, there were there have been NFL betting scandals. Pete Rose in the 80s uh, with the Reds betting on the Reds. Uh, so it, it's I think it's the weight of history. You know, leagues have been against it um, and uh, they're. They're, they're also fighting against this, uh, case as well. And they're, they're, they're on the opposite side of New Jersey. Um, so I, I think it's just the weight of history and just, uh, the, the concern that, that somehow it would manipulate, uh, the outcome of games. But I think, I think that this, the, I think the ground is really shifting on that issue. I mean, we've got a, there's an NHL team in Las Vegas. Now, uh, the Raiders are going to be moving to Las Vegas in a couple of years. Um, uh, there's, uh, uh, the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, has said that there should be legal gambling, sports betting should be legalized and it should be regulated and taxed, uh, which is the first league. Uh uh, commissioner, I can never see, or recall ever saying that. So, you know, the, the ground is shifting on that, uh, on that issue. And I think just overall the culture, there's, you know, it's, it's hard to say, like you say, it's hard to say, you know, lotteries are okay, casinos are okay, but, oh, sports betting, we can't do that. You know, once you legalize one form of betting, it's very hard to say that another form is is not is immoral or yeah, yeah or not the, like, or the way
0: we regulate yeah. online poker and things like this i mean it yeah. it doesn't seem like there's a like a, a sort of systematic framework or doctrine or ideology, you know the, the, it's just it, it's is it just ad hoc and pragmatic okay we think we can regulate you know we, we have an easier time regulating this or we know the industry this way. i mean is it it sort of seems arbitrary the way the decisions are made sometimes
1: it does and i think it's uh, partly i think it's you know when you have new technologies you know i think usually government is uh resistant to that and they and their instinct tends to be you know if they don't understand something they just ban it and then uh we saw so we've seen that certainly with online gambling and uh, i think they didn't understand kind of what how that how that worked and they just said well let, we'll just ban it and and uh you know i think when you ban something like that and we've seen this in, in gambling history over and over again is you, you know, what you do is you drive it underground you create an unregulated market and what we've seen in the past and we see to some degree today is that organized crime uh, syndicates benefit from that. You know, we saw that in the casinos in Las Vegas, you know, they were almost all of them were controlled by organized crime and, and the proceeds, the revenue from those casinos fed, uh, fueled their, uh, their enterprises across the country. These were crime syndicates that, that were, uh, that were powerful and, uh, and gambling revenue, uh, sustained them. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think government is, it's, it's better. I think they're better off bringing something out into light and regulating it. And that way you have a chance of cutting out uh, you know, crime interests.
0: It's interesting. As, as, as I read your book, I was thinking of that scene in the movie Casino where at the end, where, uh, Sam Rothstein, you know, uh, who's, who's played by Robert Neal, right? He's talking about how the old Vegas was gone, all the mobsters and the glitz, and now it's for families and corporations took over and Disney and all <laughs> and, and it's just like, you know, and I, as I'm reading i was thinking, this book is like, t- it's like telling, like, telling the story of that scene in some ways, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. It's so like, it, it goes from this like, you know, uh, dark gangster, you know, uh, you know, seedy and, and exciting kind of thing to this sort of corporate regulated government. You know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's funny. It is. We were just in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, it, we, the strip reminds me of Times Square. You know, they've got an M&M store. They've got, uh, <laughs> chain, they have, you know, chain restaurants and a Hershey's store. And there's a roller coaster in, the, in one of those hotels and which is New York, New York. So yeah, I think they're, and I, I'm not old enough to remember, uh, to really remember the seventies, but I, I, I think there is sort of this nostalgia for kind of the way Vegas used to be, maybe, maybe the way New York City used to be. You know, I hear stories about Times Square was 42nd Street was full of, you know, peep shows and trash and there was graffiti everywhere and it was great. And, the, but now it's sort of disnified, and there's, you know, the Lion King and Applebee's. chain restaurants. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, uh, Bubba Gump, Bubba Gump Shrimp. And, uh, uh, so I think the same is true. I hear stories about Las Vegas people who, you know, remember it from the the days when it was controlled by uh the mob and uh they you know they hear stories about the old you know that things were cheaper back then and you could you could get a nice steak dinner for five dollars and the betting limits were lower and they had, had more of a raffish charm to it and i think yeah now it's uh they're, they're, these are fortune 500 companies that are in control of a lot of these these, the major casino resorts in in uh, Las Vegas, so he, it is more sanitized and more a uh, little more uh, corporatized than uh, than it was uh, certainly in the seventies and, and before.
0: But it still draws you know, these characters like Phil Ruffin and Sheldon Adelson, and Steve Wynn. I mean, and you talk, you say that like basically, even though Trump wasn't really successful in the industry, I mean, because when Atlantic City cooled off, he really got burned, and that didn't yeah. seem to hurt him politically, but. Uh, but is it, I mean, you say he still associates with these casino magazines. I mean, is there something about the industry, the gamblers, that draws, like, these kinds of people? Uh, you, like, you don't see, I just don't, see, you don't see someone like, um, you're Warren Buffett's, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's what true. You know what yeah. I mean? or, or you don't see the Koch brothers, you know, kind of
1: uh, <laughs> and drawn to the industry, you know. That's true. I mean, it, I think that the casino industry does attract a certain type of personality. You know, somebody who's, who's, who's a risk taker. uh you know, it's not, I think people think that if you own a casino, it's, it's like the easiest way to make money. And it really, it really isn't. It's, you have to, uh, you know, it's also, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, we've seen casino, casino revenues decline. You know, we've seen, uh, resorts close and it's not a, it's not a, it's not a perfect, easy way to make money. Uh, but it does definitely attract a certain kind of buccaneer, uh, <laughs> uh, personality, uh, because it is, uh, it is unpredictable. And, uh, uh, and yeah, Donald Trump certainly, uh, epitomizes that. I mean, he took, uh, you know, he took big risks, uh, to, to gain a foothold in Atlantic city when it was hot. And he just, I think he stayed around too long and the the market started, started to retract. I think there was a recession in the early nineties that hurt the industry pretty bad. So, uh, yeah, so he, he didn't, uh, he didn't end up doing too well uh, in Atlantic City.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting cuz Sheldon Adelson is a fascinating character, right? And now it's like, you know, in, in American politics, it's like in primary season, all these Republicans go and kiss his ring and you that's know. Right. And, he, and he's also like a, a he's a pretty big opponent of online gambling, that's,
1: right? That's right. Yeah, he sees it as a threat to uh, the brick and mortar casinos and uh and so he's he's spent many uh, I mean he's worth I think he's worth over 30 billion dollars. He's one of the richest people in America. Uh, he's uh, uh, he's yeah, he's a huge player politically. Uh, he's he is somebody that uh, he's a huge uh, I mean, he, you do have to go and kiss his reign. They kind of they call off the Sheldon Allison primary. You've got to go into Las Vegas and listen to him talk about his issues. And then you've got to, you know, sit there and sit there quietly and nod as he uh, as he expounds on his uh his, his politics. Um, yeah, but the, yeah, the online gambling is, uh, is, is, is he's, he's really the one, uh, who the one casino operator who is, who's dead set against it. And, uh, in Nevada, it's, uh, online poker is legal, but not other uh, casino games in New Jersey. Uh, almost, almost every casino game is legal online. And, uh, so, but he he has been able to i think stem that uh through his influence uh so we'll it'll be interesting to see what happens you know when he's when he retires or he leaves the the scene if his if his uh you know whoever replaces him is 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 a dead set against it but um yeah the online gambling legalized online gambling has has been very slow and it's only uh, only a few states offer it and it's not it's not a very large percentage of the you know the overall casino uh industry
0: you you i mean you, you clearly have really good investigative reporting skills. Uh, that I mean, comes out in the book. I mean, it's a really well researched book. I wonder, as somebody who's in the newspaper business, I wonder because newspapers are in decline right now. I mean, I it, mean, you know, it's that's obvious. Like. The, consolidation news desks are getting tighter you know fewer staff people i, I wonder is part of the danger of that losing that d- sort of granular perspective on an issue like gambling i mean like you know who's gonna like if we don't have newspapers institutions where who who is gonna tell give us the kind of analysis so that we can be informed about the kind of choices we make in public life
1: yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, especially local reporting is, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really a, it's a state of crisis right now. And we don't, you know, or when I started at the San Diego Union Tribune, you know, we had, a, I mean, well over 400 people in the newsroom. Uh, we had a bureau in Washington, D.C. We had a bureau in, uh, Sacramento. We had a reporter in, New- in Mexico City. And now we don't have any of those bureaus. And we, uh, I think we're down to 125 people in the newsroom. So that's, you know, that's the third of, that's, The two, about a two thirds decline, at least, uh, just in the number of people that are looking at records and ferreting out information and finding things out. And we, so yeah, we're not, I mean, we, I think we do a great job with what we have, uh, the best job we can do, but it's, uh, you know, when you don't have those, those boots on the ground, you're going to, you're going to miss some stories and you're going to miss, yeah, like you say, you're going to miss, uh, coverage of the casino industry and, and, and other things that are, that are big movers, you know, in the community. I mean, these, you know, we have, we have 10, casinos in, uh, San Diego County and they, you know, they're, they're everywhere and their billboards everywhere. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they, the tribes have a lot of power a lot of political power and, uh, and, and, uh, they get, they know how to get things done. And, uh, so we're, yeah, we don't have the people out there to, to kind of watch over it and, and, uh, make sure they're doing, doing the right thing.
0: Have you, as a journalist, I mean, obviously the, you know, no politicians always get frustrated with the press, right? I mean, there, there's yeah. some of an adversarial relationship built in. I mean, late uh, of late in American political life, it's generally a little more Republican hostility. Um, you know, casting the media as liberal and biased. But I mean, now it's over the top. I mean, you know, the so-called fake news. I mean, like, do you oh. do, do you as a journalist feel the impact of the sort of war on the press that's that's been declared? Since Donald Trump became president,
1: yeah, I, I mean, I think it's been building for for quite a while. And I, I, I mean, I, even before Donald Trump was even even thought about running for president, I mean, I think people, uh, you know, I think people want to see their own uh, biases reflected in the news, and they don't understand why we're not covering a certain story or why we're, in their view, not covering the story the way they that sh- should be covered. Uh, because I think there is that people have a confirmation bias, and they kind of exist in their own. Uh, social media bubbles, and they, you know, maybe they just they only watch MSNBC, and they they only read certain columnists. So if a story uh, breaks that runs counter to what they're seeing on MS, MSNBC or or Fox, then they they get upset. And so I've I've certainly dealt with <laughs> with phone calls and emails or Facebook messages from people that are. That are, that I rate that we don't, you know, we're not covering the real story. And, and so this has been, this has been going on for quite a while. And I think certainly now it's at a fever pitch because there's, there's just so much, there's such a huge tide of, yeah. of news from the Trump White House. I mean, it, it's, it's just amazing like how much, how much is coming out every day and how many big stories are, are, are breaking. And uh, he just makes so much news and it's, um, it, it's, it's almost, it's almost hard to handle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the irony is right this is a guy who lives for the media. I mean he he yeah. he, lo- he loves journalism on one level cuz he, he you know this is oh, he, yeah. you know the, this is uh but at the same time you know a guy who kind of wants the adulation of the New York you know and DC elites and now has right fi- found himself scorned. I mean it, it creates this weird dynamic.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean in, in, a, in a lot of ways he is he's a creature of the media. He was he you know he's uh he, he was a tabloid uh, figure in the '80s, uh, in the '90s. You know, he was on the, the the Apprentice. You know, that's a media show on NBC. Um, so I mean, he's in a lot of ways, he's he's a creation of of, of media and the media culture. So it's it is fascinating to see him uh, trying to rebel against the the very thing that that really that created him, and uh, it certainly made him uh, made him a national figure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's it's interesting too because like i think maybe it's different dealing with you know the white house press pool than it is like page six for the post <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> it's probably easier to manipulate that <laughs> i bit. think that's true yeah yeah, it's,
1: yeah it's, uh, that's right i mean it's harder to to uh to strong arm a new york times uh investigative reporters than it is you know like maybe a celebrity columnist or robin leach or someone like that <laughs>
0: Take a brief moment to ask you A quick question Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do A morning, afternoon, or evening routine Or while you're exercising Or while you're frustrated in traffic Do you tune into it because Of the conversations you find here If the answer to the aforementioned Questions is yes or even Just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast For just five bucks a month Or more, it's for a good cause You can help this podcast And one of the many others I do Keep going To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winter Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham. Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Cress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Do you, I mean, it does seem though that, they're, that newspapers are at least having somewhat of a, a comeback in that. I think people, I mean, I, I think it seems to me that people are appreciating some of the work uh, your colleagues in, in, in the newspaper are doing just in light of this administration right now. I mean, people seem to have a sort of new appreciation um, in, in some quarters of our culture for it.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And, uh, We've, we've, we've seen an increase in, uh, in digital subscriptions, uh, since the election. I think, I think most other, uh, media organizations have also seen an increase in, uh, in, in, in at least in online subscriptions and, uh, and, and uh, ratings have gone up, I think, for cable news. Uh, so there, there's, I mean, there's definitely an appetite out there for, uh, you know, for, for, for for real journalism and, uh, you know, journalism is hard and, and it's expensive, uh, to dig into something. But I think, I think people do appreciate that there are reporters that are, you know, they're trying to figure, figure out what's going on and what's happening and they're, and they're not, uh, you know, and I think unfortunately it, you know, It all gets dismissed under this rubric of fake news. You know, if you don't agree with the findings of a of a of a report, then you just call it fake news, and you don't even you don't consider that a lot of time and effort and went into this, and a lot of expertise, and these are you know reporters that do these stories. I mean, they're they're you know, no, I don't work with anybody who's who's serving an agenda or serving a political agenda. They're 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 we're there to, to figure out, to, to find the truth. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm, nobody's putting their thumb on a scale uh to favor one side or another. I think, we, you know, we're, we're professionals and we want to, uh, you know, we're in pursuit of the truth and we have to challenge our own assumptions and we have to, uh, you know, follow the story to whoever it, conclusion it, it leads you know we don't
0: uh... yeah and do you think people like m- misconstrue the fact that okay like let's say the news pool is mostly made up of people who happen to vote democrat in a given state that that that, that somehow means they can't be fair or report and see right. you know like i mean it, it, it's i mean it seems to me that like it's you know it, it's possible to be able to tell the other side you know tell the story of a a a part a party you don't agree with uh, and tell it yeah. in a way that yeah. they would say yeah that's what we're for
1: yeah I mean that, that you know that's your job I mean yeah of course everybody comes comes to the table with their own views their own maybe their own religious faith or their own background of course I mean you you, you know we're all humans and we all have beliefs and we all have uh political beliefs and but you know when you're when you're doing your job you, you don't uh you, you you check that at the door and you don't uh you know you don't you're not there to serve your beliefs you're there to serve the people and you're there to serve uh you know just to, to, you're there in service of the truth or the best obtainable version of the truth the, the truth is, is is hard to find so uh, i think uh the, the, what i like is the best obtainable version of the truth and that's what we're and that's where that's what we that's what that's why we're in the business. That's why we do what we do. We're not there to you know we're not there just to to serve a one a political party or a particular politician or a an agency. You know we're 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 there to uh, to, to ferret out the truth as best we can.
0: Why did you go into the newspaper business?
1: Yeah, I always, uh, I always loved uh, when I was a kid, I always loved uh, writing and I always loved reading. And uh, I always loved current events, you know, you know, when I was really little. And I think, you know, when you when you mix all those things together, you know, current interest in current events and, and history and writing and reading, you know, that. That really leads you to journalism, you know. If you tie all those things together, uh, so I think from a very uh, early age, I I always loved uh, you know, reading newspapers and watching the news and reading about history and um, and uh, and for me, uh, news, newspapers was uh, was the best avenue for that, you know. It was because uh, it really it just combined all those elements and it came out every day, so you had that immediate gratification and uh, and now you now we can post stories online, so so you really have an immediate gratification you can see a story or a headline you know immediately go on you know on people's phones or on their desktop computers so that that's satisfying um so i, I just uh, always uh, always was interested in uh, journalism and the news and uh, that that's all i've ever done in my career i've I'm almost uh, over 20 years uh, as a as a newspaper editor
0: so back to gambling <laughs> <laughs> i yeah, you know, one of the things that I always am struck by when I'm in casinos in Atlantic City, for instance, is like, it is so manipulative, the, the, just the architecture, right? The exits are hard to find. There's no clocks. There's no windows. So you don't have a sense, oh, it's getting dark or, oh, it's morning or, oh, it's, and it, it it's, I, I've never been in an environment, I think, at least I never thought about it as much where, where people are so, so accept being manipulated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's yeah, it's I such know. a creepy environment right and and people just don't seem that don't feel creeped out by it
1: yeah i mean i did, it, it it it's it's fascinating and i uh i mean the casino wants to extract money from their customers as quickly and painlessly as possible that, that's that's their job so they you know I, I think you may you may remember casinos back in the 80s or 90s you know, you used to put quarters in the machine and and then if you'd won then all the t- all the quarters would tumble out and you'd hear that noise and then you have to carry the cup around to the various slot machines yeah there's there's no coins now you just it's all done on. you can put a hundred dollar bill in there you can put a twenty dollar bill in there you can use uh you know they have players cards uh every every major casino has a players card that you put in as you gamble so it keeps track of how much you're gambling and when and what kinds of games so that way you get comps you know you get free drinks or free meals or free uh free rooms at the hotel uh so yeah these Especially slot machines, and they're designed to to lure you in and and have you uh, play as quickly as possible. There's no longer you no longer pull on a handle; you just press a button, and and it, it and the play happens very quickly. And these, yeah, we were just in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago and weekends ago. And I, I, you know, like I say, I'm a light gambler, but I uh, I saw this Betty White machine slot machine, so I. <laughs> I just, I, I sat down and I, uh, I, I think I lost $10 very quickly, but it was kind of fun because, you know, if you lose, it'd be, a, you know, it'd be like a snarky comment that in Betty White's voice and. <laughs> <laughs> there's the little videos that played, and her image was there. It was it's, sort of like, like,
0: it's sort of like pinball machines. It's kind of yeah, you know, like how they do, have all these sort of you know movie themed and entertainment. Yeah, machines. they're all just, yeah. yeah, and
1: they're all like I saw Game of Thrones uh, uh, slot machines, <laughs> and I saw Breaking Bad. Uh, they had a, actually a little video that was playing from the TV show, and you know, there's yeah, they they want to make it as is as, as appealing as possible. They they use these brands to make it seem like fun and uh it's not fun to lose money quickly uh, as i found out but um it's uh yeah they, they- these casinos are geared to to uh, extract money as quickly as possible from you and uh and uh yeah it's it is amazing just to walk through a casino and just watch people uh there's sometimes i see people playing two slot machines at the same time you know because they're not happy they want to lose twice as fast i guess or you see people ordering meals you know you you, there's like a little little cart that comes comes up and they're you know there's a half-eaten sandwich and you know they don't want to walk away from their machine because they're they're so uh they're so hooked into it um so it's it's yeah, it, it's, it's, um, fascin- it's yeah. It's it's um It's it's both fascinating and it's, both, it's also scary, you know, to see that and you, and you know that these people a lot of these people probably can't afford to play and they can't afford to lose this volume of money and and for and sure, all, for all the talk that, too,
0: that we have about addiction in our culture right now and and rightly so the opioid I mean there's you know we we have massive addiction no you never hear about gambling addiction
1: yeah but, and that that was one of the more troubling uh, findings during the book is is how states really see that as an acceptable side effect you know to all this to the increase in gambling revenue i think they'd see it as um, it's okay and it's it's really not okay and uh, whenever you have an increase in gambling you're going to have an increase in the number of cases of problem gambling is what they you know the experts call it so i think there's about five million people in the us that that are considered problem gamblers, which is a number that's going up. And, uh, you know, states are really not doing very much. And as a whole to, uh, address that issue, or there are some states that, uh, they spend $0 on treating, uh, problem gambling. And there's some states where it's, it's $25,000 or it's $50,000. It's a pittance. And there are some, there are a few states that are, that are do better that they, they really do have good treatment programs and they have a hotline and that people can call and, uh, but uh, I think that was one of the more troubling findings. Was 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 how how states really just don't see it as their problem, and they uh, they in general they shrug it off. And uh, I spent a day at a Gamblers Anonymous uh, meeting at a church uh, out here in San Diego County, and they were generous enough to let me sit there and listen to them. I didn't take any notes or use their names for the book, but I you know I just listened to their stories, and it was really harrowing. I mean, there were several people that. Said they, they contemplated suicide, uh, because of, uh, what gambling had done to them. Uh, they lied to their spouses. They lied to their children. Uh, they lied to their boss at work where they were. Uh, their, 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 uh, banking, bank accounts, uh, went down to nothing. And these are people that are, you might see at church or you might see, uh, at, at your office. These are many of them were in their, fifties and sixties. And, and just the stories were, were, uh, were really opening uh, to me. And, um, that's, and they, that's just one group and one church, but there's, you know, they're all across the country that these, these people were these stories. And, uh, so I think states need, you know, they need to step up to the plate and realize that, you know, this, this, this does have a, uh, a side effect uh, for our society and they should do more.
0: David, you've written an eye-opening book, and it's great. I mean thanks for being on the podcast. And I encourage everyone because it's again, it, it it's it's a great read, and it's just you know, it's it, this is a, an issue, a reality, gambling that's woven into how we fund our public life. So, it's, yeah, so it's tough. worth knowing about.
1: Oh well, thank you so much for having me, Scott.
0: Uh, the Pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Gangsters to Governors, the New Bosses of Gambling in America. It's a great read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.